Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Anna Lindner, your host, and today we are talking to Dr. Jenna Hanshi about her book, The Center Cannot Hold. Jenna, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm really excited about this. Yeah, me too, for sure. So Dr. Hanshi is a assistant professor at Arizona State University. She's working on a manuscript titled African Futurism Beyond Development. She's currently trying to take up the concept of decolonial dream work and turning towards more African futurism concepts. She's an associate member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association as well. So she is writing fantasy and and science fiction, which is really exciting. So welcome to the show. Um, To start off, just to briefly explain what your book is about, you've spent a lot of time over the almost past two decades at a NGO uh, in Tanzania where you're doing a lot of different type of work with a pretty big team. Um, And your book is centered on talking about your experiences with that NGO and really reflecting on who you are as a person and a scholar as you're doing that. So I wanted to start out with talking about Uh, the importance of Western white scholars in particular, a a group that you associate yourself with. Why is it important that we go beyond merely listing identity categories when we're talking about issues of reflexivity and then engage in what you call haunted reflexivity, which is a concept I've already um, (laughs) picked up from my own work that I want to use and become, yeah, it's, it's great. I really like it. Um, and then you talk about becoming decolonial co-conspirators, which co-conspirators is a term that people have been using in recent years. Yeah. Um, so I guess just to give a brief overview for any listeners who, uh, haven't read anything about the book yet. Um, The Center Cannot Hold, Decolonial Possibility in the Collapse of a Tanzanian NGO um, centers on my experiences with and then what, you know, uh, participant observation and ethnographic research, um, which here I actually do through the lens of rhetorical fieldwork for you rhetoricians out there. Um, But it it centers on the way that... um, Western identities and subjectivities, and then also Western organizational forms can hamper the work that Tanzanians are trying to do in their own communities um, because of the way that they're structured by neocolonialism and by whiteness. And so um, the book kind of walks through the way that uh, when Western subjectivities meet their own uh, complicity in those structures, they kind they have to fall apart and reconstruct themselves on other terms in order to be doing good work. And that's kind of the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book traces the way that Western organizational structures need to recognize their complicity, fall apart, and re reorganize on other terms in order for decolonial possibility to emerge. And so uh, the question that you posed kind of is focusing on that first part, right? The, the way that Western identities are really based in Um, assumptions of colonialism and whiteness that we, and particularly white Westerners, but those are structures, right, that do structure um, a lot of assumptions about aid and the people who are engaging in it. Um, It's just way more pronounced in um, white folks who have not started to uh, go, what's the word, to reflect over them. And so what I'm talking about here in terms of haunted reflexivity shows up or in terms of not engaging really deeply with reflexivity shows up as well in academic work in the ways that um, a lot of white Western scholars, when, when pressed to reflect over the way that the place that they are coming from the world, the relations that they have with other people um, and how their identity, you know, interacts with those, We'll often just list those identities at the beginning of an essay and put like, I am a white, cis woman, Western scholar writing about, you know, this sort of thing. And so that affects the way that I look at it. And when we do that, what it does is it assumes 
it, it's it's a movement towards avoiding facing your identity rather than engaging really deeply with what it means and how it's structured your writing. It's a way of when I talk about in the book, um, picking up like fellows and Razak and other people who've written about chasing innocence, right? It's a way of trying to chase an innocence of like, I can write about this because look, I've listed the identities. I've done the thing. I've checked off the box. Now I can write about whatever I was going to write about anyway, without actually engaging what it means that I'm coming from these perspectives, coming from a certain like way of relating in the world. I'm also picking up here, Amy Korea Rowe's concept of power lines um, and of uh, thinking about subjects as, um, within a politics of relation rather than a politics of identity. Because I think that what those uh, listing identity categories at the beginning of an essay is coming from a perspective where uh, scholars think that that's what matters, that you have a stable identity that you can list. And if you admit it, there's nothing else to say because that's that the identity itself means something. Um, but what Korea Rowe pushes us to think is that it's about how that identity uh, affects the way that you interact with other people. Who are you building relationships with and who aren't you? Um, who do you listen to and respect and who don't you? And that what matters is not the category itself, but the way that that structures how we relate to other things, including scholarship. So if you're just listing the identity without talking about the way that that has impacted how you are relating to different scholars, who you are citing, how you are bringing different knowledges into play and into relation, then you're not actually doing the work of reflexivity. You're avoiding it by listing those categories. So with haunted reflexivity, what I'm trying to do here is point to the, the, the idea that reflexivity is not something that you can just do. You can't just write a list and have it done. There you go. Check it off. Reflexivity is achieved. Um, but that it's something that you have to continually be grappling with. Um, and that goes for everyone because we are all implicated in structures of power, but the people who need to do the most work on it are white Westerners who, within particularly colonial and racial structures, um, often do not actually have to do that grappling most of the time, uh, or are not forced to do that grappling, should be doing that, and are, are not forced to, can move through the world without doing it very easily. And so viewing reflexivity as a haunting, as something that uh, a, 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 an absence that structures the way that we engage with the world, um, but then also thinking about it as a haunting of uh, it, within everything that we, within, by supporting power structures of colonialism and racism, we are party to death. Um, I'm thinking about Sayak Valencia, who wrote this uh, really you know, uh, hard to read and and powerful book called Gore Capitalism, um, who writes about the way that, you know, U.S. life is structured on gore, on death. And um, so thinking about that and, and other, you know, ways that colonialism and racism structures what we do, uh, how we live, the, the way we get, you know, materials and goods, the phones we use using coltan, you know, that is probably coming from the Democratic Republic of Congo and then made in a factory in China. And then we're just using them every day, not thinking about it. Our very ways of life are dependent on other people's suffering and death. And so thinking about that as a process of continually of, of reflexivity as a process of continually reckoning with those ghosts, with the people that are killed um, through systems of racism and colonialism means that it's not something that we can ever settle um, until we destroy those systems, which like I do, you know, love imagining decolonial futures. Um, but for now we're living within them and we need to be continually thinking about how everything we do has some, uh, dependence on uh, the, the the actual ghosts of other people. Um, and so by thinking of reflexivity as a haunting, it encourages uh, researchers to, to recognize that it's not something that can ever be fully completed or done. It's something that we always have to struggle with. Um, and for, I think, 
a Western mindset that can often feel like, well, then why do it? Because Westerners tend to have a like, you go to the goal and you reach the goal and then the goal is done. And that's how we think about things. But, um, but really what it is, is it gives us the freedom to recognize that um, we're never going to get there. We try our hardest, we keep going and you, you pick it up and you try again. It gives you the ability to face your own complicities and face your own failures um, and to not put that on other people, but to recognize, okay, I didn't do it this time. Um, when you hear then a critique, when you hear a criticism from a person of color, from somebody from the, you know, the global majority population um, that is not white and not Western, um, when you hear those critiques, then they're a gift because they are helping move your reflexivity in a direction more towards justice rather than something that you take as an attack on your identity, right? Um, it's not an attack on your identity if you recognize that you're constantly shifting in motion. This reflexivity is a process and that any critique then is a gift that helps you move forward with that process. I'm drawing from a lot of women of color feminists who have said similar things there in, in that theorization and hopefully putting it in terms that can help um, researchers who are struggling with how to think through uh, moving away from trying to claim innocence right through those that listing of categories at the beginning of an essay or finding themselves frustrated with that and not knowing where else to turn. Yeah, that's excellent because... As a historian, too, I think you do a really good job of kind of connecting to colonial imperialistic, you know, enslavement pasts where we are not somehow disconnected from those moments. We, it's a continuation and it's a very dynamic situation. And your discussion of reflexivity, too, also makes me think about kind of the neoliberal kind of politics, identitarian politics that we're in now, which just like you describe is, oh, check the box, and then we're doing our work. And then the weird post-racial moment that we're into where it's like, oh, we are now beyond race, outside of race. Everything's diverse, and diversity actually becomes a um, an obscuring kind of a smokescreen, right? Where, oh, everything's diverse, so now the work is done and everything's great, right? And it's actually... The opposite, just like you say, that reflexivity allows people to, particularly white Westerners, to take on that innocence because it's like, oh, look, I did it. Here it is. Just like diversity. Oh, now we are done as an institution or as whatever group that is diverse. Um, and I wanted to connect what you were just saying um, about white Westerners trying to claim innocence to another very big part of your argument, which is the white savior fantasy. This was the other thing that I was really interested in and uh, thought about a lot when I was reading. White savior fantasies obviously connected to past and present uh, global relations, an abstract ideal, but then also a material condition as well. Um, what is the white savior fantasy? How did you see U.S. volunteers dealing with that? What was the ambivalent ways in which they were trying to contend with the white savior fantasy? And what are the kind of manifestations and consequences of that? Yeah. Um, so the way that I'm thinking about, I'm putting white saviorism in um, some psychoanalytic terms that started when I took a class on Lacan in grad school and then moved away from that to, to, to different um, iterations of thinking about subjectivity through um, women of color feminists and the way that they're thinking about subjectivity as process in a, in a, in a different way, right. Than, than psychoanalytic, but I'm still kind of using that background as well. Um, in thinking about if our if our subjectivities are iterative processes, which is something I was thinking about as well in the haunted reflexivity, right? It's we're continually forming and reforming our identities. Um, then we we form them on these ideas of uh, 
a fantasy of being a whole being. Like I, I can be a complete human being if, you know, I do this thing or I achieve this. And for the most part, that's unconscious. We're, we're not consciously thinking that, but it does structure the way that we interact in the world. And so um, what I'm thinking about here is the way that that white savior fantasy is an unconscious fantasy that structures a lot of the ways that Western volunteers and particularly white Western volunteers engage um, in the Tanzanian space that I was that I was observing and participating in. And that that underlying fantasy is, you know, I can be like, I can achieve wholeness. I can be a complete human being if I can save other people. Um, and there is, there's assumptions that underlie that of having something to offer, even when you don't have any necessary, like any skills or talents, there's an assumption of like, simply by being a person, a white person from the US or, you know, or the West that you have something to offer. Um, There's an assumption then that underlies that, that Tanzanians don't have agency over their own lives or don't have as much agency as you could give them if you were able to to do something on their behalf. Um, And that, you know, that's something that you can feel good about. Like that's, that's what underlies this. It's a, it's a search for meaning and the meaning becomes I have the ability to, you know, have done something with my life if I fix things in another country. Um, I've been thinking about white savior fantasy. This might seem like a, a detour in um, in the interview, but it's something that's really on my mind right now because um, I've been thinking about this a lot in the last few days, also in the science fiction and fantasy community that I'm a part of. Um, a lot of the white savior fantasy relies on an idea that other people's problems are easy to fix because you're looking in from the outside and you don't understand the context and you don't understand what it is like to live within that context as the people that are living within it, um, as, you know, black people living in Tanzania in those contexts, you as a white person from the West or, you know, whoever we're talking about does not have the full grasp of what that means. And so thinks, oh, your problems look easy and solvable from where I'm standing. Um, And so I've been seeing this a lot happening uh, within the last week in the speculative fiction community where um, there is a a famous magazine, the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, that um, issued an acceptance for a story to a person that was later found to be a white supremacist fascist. And... The editor of that magazine is a black woman, one of, I believe, the first black woman to edit this magazine and perhaps any of the major science fiction and fantasy magazines. And um, the owner of the magazine, though, is a white man. All of the flack on the Internet has been falling upon um, the black woman editor of the magazine, Sheree Renee Thomas, who has done so much phenomenal work in the speculative fiction community and um, is being harassed on the internet for why haven't you done something now to fix this problem? Why haven't you just immediately retracted the acceptance? Why haven't you, you know, gotten rid of of this fascist story? And again, I'm reminded of the ways that white saviorism can creep into other spaces all of the time, how that structures the way that white Westerners engage in the world, even here in the U.S., because that fantasy is something that we're, we're unconsciously using um, to to provide meaning all the time. It's really easy for me as an outsider who does not know the inner political workings of that magazine or what it is like to be a public figurehead of something that has, you know, this huge uh, reputation in the fantasy and science fiction community uh, for that, you know, for a black woman to be the figurehead of that. um, And, Then to be told by these people on the outside, well, just, you know, it should be so easy. Why aren't you fixing it? Um, That's the white savior fantasy again. And uh, there was um, someone on Twitter who pointed this out um, and did a fantastic job. And I don't remember who it was off the top of my head and would really like to reference that. And so I am um, kind of pausing here while I look for who that was, because it was a brilliant thread. Um, 
but that's White Savior. It is Tonya Ransom. Tonya Ransom pointed that out on Twitter, um, that this is a manifestation of white saviorism. Uh, because again, it's an idea that I have the ability to fix this problem. If I were in your position, I could fix it. Um, let me help you fix it. I have the agency as somebody who is not an editor of the magazine, not in that context, definitely not a black woman dealing with racism um, in general, I have the ability to, to help you fix this. And so we see it structuring even the way that people engage in the West as well. Um, but so you can see then how it becomes maybe this example, I, I'm just going to continue with it for a minute. Um, as an abstract ideal, it structures the way that we think about ourselves, uh, but then how we interact with others in the world. And in this case, it's absolutely going to have material impacts as well. It's going to have material impacts on, um, you know, the reputation of a black woman who has done so much for this community and has put in nothing but labor. It might have material impacts as well on her life, um, the kinds of threats she is now going to receive, um, the kinds of flack that she is going to get from various communities. Um, and so in, in, in terms of the NGO in Tanzania, the kinds of impacts that that had, um, I think that the NGO, the, the, the people who ran the organization were attempting to mitigate the material impacts. And so when volunteers came in, knew that they didn't want to, you know, have them doing uh, jobs that, that the NGO depended on. And so it would give them tasks like, paint this building or weed this garden. And I actually write about in, in the chapter how some of the volunteers were frustrated that the task they were given um, was weeding the garden and that um, some other, they saw some other volunteers were given a task of uh, picking lettuce to eat for dinner. And um, they saw the people weeding the garden and finished their task a lot quicker assumed they were the same task and even said like, look at them. They're taking so much longer than we did. Why aren't they done yet? We're so much better at this. And really it's, they're different tasks. One, but you, they assumed, right. That there's a, uh, a hierarchy there uh, of skill um, again, used it to reinforce this ability that like we have something to offer. We're doing better than other people. There's, there was this constant need to show um, that, I don't know, that, that a, a, a doing better in the world, like I'm, I'm doing more good for the world than these other people. And that's something that the white savior fantasy, uh, puts into play materially as well, because if the idea is, um, that you're making meaning off of being able to fix other people or to do more good in the world than other people, that's kind of the structuring assumption. You're looking for ways to compete, to say like, well, I've done more good than so-and-so. Um, that's actually getting into another part. I don't remember if you said this out loud that you wanted me to talk through the denial and the irony parts of it. Um, but yeah, I think that there's two ways... Um, that the white savior fantasy uh, really showed up in these volunteers and not just the white savior fantasy itself, because a lot of people talk about that, but the ways that the white savior fantasy is reinforced through the ways that people are talking about the work that they're doing. So um, what I saw in volunteers is that, and that's that re, re, reinstantiating it, right? Because by this point in time, by the point in time that I was doing this field work, which was, you know, now seven or eight years ago, um, people knew that being a white savior was a bad thing. And so the processes that we were looking at here are not like, it's not so easy to just point out like, hey, white saviorism is bad. That doesn't get rid of it because I argue it's this, it's structuring the way that we think about our subjectivities in the West on a subconscious or unconscious level. You can't just say like, don't be a white savior because people don't, people have ways of avoiding recognizing it. And so what I was looking at is when called out like, hey, that's being a white savior. How do people keep on with the fantasy? How is it that volunteers still are like, nah, but I'm going to keep doing the same thing I've been doing. You have to be able to either 
deny that you're a white savior or have some sort of irony about it. Like, oh, yeah, okay, maybe I'm participating a little bit, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And so so I was looking at the ways that um, volunteers would be faced with a direct quote, like you just said, you know, that you can help other people because you're blessed. And doesn't that sound white savory? And then the ways that they would deny their implication in it through either rewording the statement, oh, I know that's what I said, but that's not what I meant. What I meant was this this other thing. It's a way of avoiding facing the contradiction of being a white savior when you don't want to be. Um, or they would uh, explain it away through slipping through like, I use this term, but if we really trace what this term means, it, it really means this other thing over here. And so like a slippage between uh uh, of language to, to, to get out of it. Um, and then on the side of irony, it was, um, really about recognizing like maybe I'm participating a little bit, but it's not as bad as someone else. And if I can point the finger away to somebody else, then I don't have to face it in myself. I can, you know, use that as a shield of saying like, I'm at least a little bit more innocent because I'm not as bad as these other people over here. Um, the disconcerting thing about this is that as I was writing about it, I had to also face that the chapter itself is a means of reinforcing the same things that I'm talking about. That by writing a chapter on, oh, hey, pointing at other people and saying they're worse than me is a way to, of avoiding white savior is like implication in white saviorism. Like, Oh shit, that's exactly what I'm doing. Writing this whole chapter is a way of me avoiding <laughs> that. I am just as implicated in white saviorism as everybody else as a researcher who is participating in this organization. Um, what do I do with that? And so that is what led me to thinking about haunted reflexivity uh, and as this process of um, how do you recognize that you are participating in these dynamics and then not avoid it? What do you know if 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 we're continually being faced with ways like if if the whole thing about the you know, reinforcing white saviorism through reconstituting subjectivities and identities again and again on that basis, even when faced with like, hey, you're being a white savior, like, well, no, because, uh, you know, you keep the fantasy in place and then just rethink how you're thinking of yourself as a person. What are ways of avoiding that? Like, how do we how do we not keep the fantasy in place? What is the what is the option, you know, when faced with it to not deny, to not try to put it on somebody else? And so what I'm trying to do in that chapter is show how that happens and then own that I'm doing it and then make a movement to haunted reflexivity as um, as we are facing those opportunities to be called out and reform our subjectivities. How do we take responsibility for what we've been participating in and move in a different direction. So haunted reflexivity is, is my answer of every time then that we start to recognize whether that's by someone else pointing it out, um, realizing ourselves, coming into that realization, reading something that points it out, um, having a moment that is extremely uncomfortable and sitting with why. Every time that we have those opportunities, that's a moment where we can choose to engage in haunted reflexivity instead of um, just denying it or reflexively, you know, pointing at somebody else and saying they're worse. Um, yeah. 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 No, that I've, I felt the same for a long time. Like there's so much more to reflexivity, but I just couldn't put my finger on it. And it felt just like this really frustratingly elusive thing where I'm like, I'm trying to do the work that I need to do as a white person, but then I, I'm not, and I can't, and I'm, I don't know why exactly. So this, really helped me kind of understand. Um, and then returning back to the idea of haunted reflexivity, kind of a different aspect of it that you're talking about, and I'm going to quote you here. Um, 
this book is a part of the production and dissemination of Western knowledge systems that are dependent on the obfuscation and erasure of other epistemologies on neo-colonial and racial violences that were part and parcel of their collection and on the colonial amnesia that figures their continued dominance. Western knowledge depends on the making of ghosts. And I thought that was a really nice summary. Again, as a historian, I'm thinking about how colonialism is not passed. You know, there, it, it's a rot, as you say. It, it rots our, our systems and our structures and our relations. Um, I should say that's a quote I'm taking from someone else. Yes, just yes, it is. Yeah. The rot that remains. <laughs> the rot that remains. Exactly. Yes. Um, and that's the idea of the ghosts, uh, you know, thinking about it as a rot, but then also thinking about it as ghosts and how they are made. Um, talking, talk us through a little bit more of like how that has affected what you've done as both a researcher and as a person in general. <laughs> um, yeah. So thinking about ghosts, um, that has been important to me. I, I mean, I came at this personally in a lot of ways uh, because before I was doing research on Tanzania, I was a Peace Corps volunteer um, in a, a small uh, a small secondary school in a rural area in um, the south um, southwest highlands of Tanzania. Um, and a lot of that experience was what led me to grad school to trying to process, uh, how I had gone as a volunteer, um, because of these white savior ideas or gone in with that mindset, not recognizing it, not thinking about colonial legacies at all. Um, and I was, uh, I, I'd done my undergraduate in uh, physics and mathematics education. And so I was a, a high school physics teacher, a secondary school physics teacher, trained as a high school physics teacher in the US and then was a secondary school physics teacher um, in, in Tanzania. And while I was there, I was both faced with after I had, um, you know, gotten a hold of Swahili well enough after about a year and a half to really start understanding um, what people were saying, but then also um, formed enough deep relationships with the people that I was living with to finally get a glimpse of how little I had understood what was happening the entire time I had been there, um, socially within, uh, dynamics of, uh, you know, gender and race. And then the way that the community functioned, the assumption that I'd been making about, uh, the way that life worked and that people viewed the world, um, that just because I didn't even recognize I had held them as assumptions. I just thought this is the way things are. Um, and so it took me, you know, a year and a half of living there to have any sort of recognition of how little I had been understanding. Um, and to start to recognize, like, I've been doing harm. Um, I've been teaching physics, which I can do and I'm trained to do. But also, I, you know, the Peace Corps at that point in time, it was during the president's emergency plan for HIV AIDS relief. There were a number of PEPFAR grants that volunteers could apply for. And, you know, we were we were, um, you know, very much like encouraged to apply for these grants to do uh, women's empowerment trainings, HIV AIDS education. And um, I, I, I participated in those. And to some extent, like they were good, but to another extent, like what in the world did I know as a white 23 year old about what it meant to be an empowered woman in a Tanzanian village context? And I had to come to terms with the fact that like some of the things that I've been telling people, they, they don't apply to their lives whatsoever. I just thought that this would be useful because why, why did I think I had any sort of, you know, uh, place to speak about, about their lives. And so, um, that is something that I was already grappling with when, um, uh, 
a friend of mine, another Peace Corps volunteer came to visit me and um, we went to climb a, a rock, the, the second largest rock in East Africa, Mbuji, and he fell to his death. And to me, these things became inextricable because, and it took me the like 13 years since that happened to when the book was finally finished, I think, to put together why. So all of my, you know, thinking about reflexivity, thinking about um, ghosts, uh, it's very much personally connected to a literal ghost that haunts me. And I grappled with a lot of the reason that we could um, go on the hike as an adventure, not have local guides or hosts um, was based in the same sort of colonial systems um, for myself, structures of whiteness that cause uh, me to you know, engage as well in the community unreflexively. And so I was really trying to grapple with how to write this story in a way that spoke to how um, like my personal experience with dealing with death, with the, the logics that led me to a place where that happened to my friend um, were the similar logics as the ones I was struggling with in relation to how I was engaging um, as a teacher and then continuing from there, what I saw in myself as a researcher and in other volunteers who are engaging um, in that space, in the, in the space of the NGO, which is, you know, a different place than where I was teaching. Um, and so, yeah, I was trying to, through this concept, put together uh, that research itself is based in... Um, in violence, epistemic violence, and sometimes research is based in physical violence and material violence as well, uh, but certainly epistemic violence, Western knowledge systems that um, don't take African knowledge seriously as knowledge, uh, take um, African lives as a starting point for uh, an ex or take African lives sometimes as an exotic example that can be just punctuated against the West um, or something like a, wow, look at this, instead of uh, taking the knowledges that have been constructed over, you know, thousands of years for seriously, um, taking those as knowledge systems that as theory uh, that needs to be listened to, um, that any time that that is not taken seriously is, isn't, is a violence and that it is reliant upon making its own ghosts. However, metaphorical, I, I mean, I think that there are literal ghosts and metaphorical ghosts that we're always talking about in relation to, to the violences that colonialism and racism do, um, for knowledge systems. Often those ghosts are metaphorical in, in, uh, knowledges that exist, but are a structured absence, um, in Western literature. Um, that, that, and then, you know, the harm that research can do that, uh, certainly is visited by on, you know, on people by colonialism, racism, that's very physical and material. And that, that creates ghosts, ghosts as well. Um, when we're not paying attention to it, that those ghosts are what we need to be paying attention to in order to structure our research in ways that aim towards justice. Yeah. I mean, and I just want to take the moment to say too that you do that so beautifully in this book. I I don't I don't think I can think of a better example of your kind of bringing together your excellent writing style, these metaphors of ghosts, your personal experience, your very very well grounded scholarship, and your new ideas. I, it's just I was very engaged, especially when you were talking about that in the book. It was. It was inspiring um, for me as a writer and as a person, you know, in general, both. 
And I really, really, really liked it a lot, actually. Um, and I, I mean that fully, fully. Yeah. Um, it's a very deeply personal book and, uh, it's just, it's beautiful. Um, and I, I want to talk a little bit too about the end of the book. Um, when I, obviously you're putting everything kind of together, you're talking about how the NGO fell apart, right? Uh, metaphorically, (laughs) structurally, the, the organization, um, and that opened up new possibilities that were necessary for moving forward and for seeking that type of justice that obviously your work and your life are aimed towards. And you talk about it in terms of um, liquid agency is the concept that you ended up falling on for this, describing what happened. And you say that it is it is inherently connected to epistemic justice, which is just what you were just talking about, um, which involves valuing African perspectives and knowledges on their own terms um, as legitimate forms of knowing and being in the world. Um, I was wondering if you could expand on that, on what liquid agency is and how your book kind of understands liquid agency and then also sees that as important for moving us forward. Yeah, um, I'm drawing really heavily here from um, the excellent work of Joel Cruz and Chigozirum Utah Sodeke and their concept of liquid organizing um, that they have an article about, uh, I believe it's either in communication theory or communication monographs. Um, but that article on liquid organizing is looking at the way that um, that for them as researchers, African researchers, learning how to do qualitative research at institutions in the U.S., and then going back to the continent to do research work, that they realized that their training and qualitative methods had not it, it had given them ideas of what to look for that didn't work for African communities and the kinds of organizing that they wanted to research. And so they're looking at the ways that um, liquid organizing is not recognized as organizing in Western forms of knowledge, and that it's something that is both um, forced on African populations by economic marginalization and colonial marginalization, but it is also a strategy of um, surviving and thriving within those kinds of systems. So it's, it's both and. And so because of that ambivalence, too, I pick up um, the, the work of Godfrey Asante on uh, the queerly ambivalent and the ways uh, he is particularly looking at um, folks in Ghana who use who are using this sort of like queer ambivalence and identifying in different ways in different places, not always as queer, not always as straight, not always as bi. They're not one thing, but they lean into this ambivalence so that they um, can uh, move through structures of violence um, without, you know, getting repercussions, um, like uh, avoid violences, uh, not avoid violences, it's, you know, like try to keep themselves safe within structures of violence by, you know, um, it, to me, that felt like a very liquid movement as well. And so putting these two things together, I was thinking about um, the ways that uh, Africans are using liquid agencies within Western structures to um, to be able to, you know, claim power over decision-making that um, Western colonial structures are attempting to deny them. And so I'm thinking in, in the context of the NGO, uh, the the liquid versus solid distinction is actually, it can be quite material as well. Um, a lot of Western donors, uh, one of the, the people I interviewed at the NGO said buildings, They're, they always want to build buildings. Why do you know Western donors always want to give us money for buildings? He was like, they don't want to give us money to then, you know, pay for the staffing for those buildings um, or for like a health clinic. They don't want to give us money for medicines. They don't want to give us money to, you know, pay for the operation costs, but they want us to build the building. And so I was thinking about the ways that then the the people at the NGO, the, the employees, the Tanzanian employees at the NGO, 
end up using liquid strategies to really move through these uh, solid things that are put, solid expectations that are put on them by donors in order to get things done that they really need to get done in order to say to, to help their community, to make sure that people in their community are getting the resources and help that they need. Um, a lot of that looks very different than the way that we would think about um, when we think about, you know, I, I think in the West, we tend to well, particularly in, in organizations, things are very solid. There's, you know, policies, there's uh, procedures for everything. Um, there's, you know, a chain of command that things move through um, at an organization and that things are, should be structured on those. Um, but at the NGO, uh, so much more is contingent, um, dependent on the context, moving as it needs to because of the depth of relationships that people have built with one another and that that's what makes things work. It moves much more liquidly. And that is, again, like Cruz and Sodeke point out, both a, a response to um, the ways that things are imposed on them. Like they need to move in these sort of ambivalent ways of like, yes, we're going to take your money donor, but we're also going to, you know, use it for some of the things that we need to use it for to, to get people the, 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 the resources they need and build your building. <laughs> so there's this ambivalence of like taking the money, but then using it in these other ways um, strategically to, to get the things they need done done. So as a response to that, but then there's also a way in which it becomes uh, liquid agency or, or making, you know, taking control over decision-making in these more liquid ways, in these more uh, ambivalent ways that are, are based in relationships with community, respondent to the context. That kind of decision-making looks different and it enables different things um, than the more formalized views of agency do. So um, responding emergently to context uh, allows for them to, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example right now, <laughs> um, but uh, there are ways that, that, that responding to the emergent context enables decolonial possibilities that otherwise would not have been there within the context of the NGO. Um, remaining within the structures of colonialism and whiteness, you know, following those rules always ends up in the same place. It reinstantiates those power dynamics, but these sort of liquid moves that are not straightforward enough to be something shut down by power, you know, ambivalent enough that they can just move around it, enable decolonial possibility um, in the lives of the people working at the organization and the people that they are helping. Yeah, I think this was really helpful for me to kind of understand what had happened in my own life, too, because I came from like a a strong like Christian Protestant, but like very strong social justice background. And my dad was attempting to do kind of something similar where he was trying to start a church and like a community organization that was you know, intentionally diverse and bringing together a lot of different people who never would have interacted normally um, and trying to seek that kind of and and was aware of white saviorism, but was kind of dealing with that and was unsure of kind of how to go forward. He had, he knew some, but he didn't know enough to really, really be able to do liquid agency or be able to do decolonial anti-racist work. It was kind of like the soft form of that. And then I went to an, a Christian undergrad that kind of was a continuation of like, how do we deal with the problem of aid, right? And I read all of those. I was an international development studies minor, read all of the, how do we actually help in Africa in a way that's not problematic that was happening in like the early 2010s, right? And, you know, taking these classes where they're like trying to break down for us, like, oh, this is how you do it. And I'm like, this doesn't work. I know because we tried to start a church that was doing this type of work, you know, within the structures of not only white Western epistemologies, but also religious epistemologies. And then it fell apart. It, the exact same thing happened, but without people who were able to continue on in the ruins, without people who are able to slide into something else 
in a very liquid way that works. And just the kind of emotion of that and the reckoning that came from that and the the pain and the feeling of loss and then that absence because that that happened my whole childhood that was my childhood that was my entire childhood up until i think the church failed in like 2015 or something so um it felt very personal for me because i was like ah that's what happens that that's what happened that's what happened it was uh a neocolonial structure falling apart and then nothing in the absence. And I wanted to talk briefly about kind of where you are now at the end of this book with decolonial justice. And obviously you mentioned um, African futurism, which you use instead of Afro-futurism on purpose. Beyond development, which when I was an undergrad, development was like the good new PC term, right? And now (laughs) we obviously know, okay, now that's not even still great. Um, So kind of where you are with all of that, what you're writing, what you're thinking about for the future. Yeah. um, I also want to say, you know, you might not have seen where things went from the ruins of that church. Like, it's very possible that things did spin off of that, that were outside of the purview of like, you know, coming from the perspective of the like white organizers of it, you might not have seen where things went from there that could have been, you know, headed in better directions. Like maybe there wasn't only emptiness. Cause I think that a lot of um, when people, we white Western knowledges make it very difficult to even see Tanzanian or African knowledge as knowledge. And so sometimes what looks like absence is actually something that, you know, we're not paying attention to. Um, So I do want to throw that out as well. But um, yeah, where I'm headed from here. So uh, I do want to note for those of you who end up reading the book that because of the, you know, Tanzanian a movement, the, the the different liquid agencies and liquid organizings that were claimed within that space, it did end up breaking the NGO apart as well. Um, but from that, uh, two of the Tanzanians who worked at the NGO, along with the uh, Western couple that managed it during the time that I was um, doing field work there, created their own new organization that was explicitly based in attempting to, uh, from the ground up, build it in a way where the sort of problems with donors and volunteers that they were seeing in the first one could not happen again. And right now that organization is really flourishing. And um, the uh, the the two Tanzanian co-founders, um, one of them is doing all of the fundraising for it. The other one is doing all of the running of programming. And then the Western couple that had initially managed the first NGO is um, doing the logistics behind the scenes, helping out with them on that end. But the, the programming and the fundraising is all run by the Tanzanian co-founders. And they are doing great work in helping young Tanzanians have the training to imagine and to put into place their own uh, futures for their own communities. And so I'm really excited about where that's going. Um, for my own work, then, I'm um, in the end I ta- of, this, of this book, I talk about that as uh, decolonial dream work, as being able to imagine beyond the boundaries of what colonial structures and white structures hand us, um, particularly the way that the Tanzanians at the NGO were engaging in a decolonial dream work that goes beyond um, those frameworks. And so I was interested in turning towards where, you know, what are Africans imagining for their own futures beyond these structures of aid and development? What does that look like? Um, and so I turned to, and I'm also a huge nerd. As you can tell, I write science fiction and fantasy myself, and I'd already been reading a ton of African speculative fiction, which is the umbrella term for science fiction, fantasy, horror, and surrealism. And so I was like, oh, I can, I can, re- I can look at this as research. And so I've been doing a lot of work on African speculative fiction and the ways that African writers um, imagine outside of the bounds of development. And I'm using uh, for African futurism as opposed to Afrofuturism here, we're just looking at things that are continentally based rather than 
speaking to the diaspora, to the diaspora, because um, like there are connections for sure, interrelations and overlaps. These two things are not completely separate, um, but there is a, a different flavor to a project that is focused on continental futures from the perspective of those either raised in the continent or, you know, raised in um, extensions of that immediate uh movement to other places rather than um, the, the, the people who are dealing with the legacies of the slave trade, um, which is a very uh, related but different historical context to be um, grappling with in terms of what futures or what the present looks like. And so I'm looking at African speculative writers broadly, not just science fiction, but also fantasy and surrealism because um for Africans, you know, technology, magic, uh, spirituality, ancestors, um, these things are not separate. Um, and so thinking about them together and what those do for the ways that uh, Africans are imagining their own possibilities and putting them into place. Um, yeah, so I've got this this book project I'm working on, and along with it, I'm doing a podcast uh, called Griots and Galaxies that is co-hosted by um, myself, Chinello Unwalu, and Yvette Lisa Ndilovu, Um, and uh, that should be uh, coming out in October. We're very excited about that. It's, uh, I should mention, um, supported by the Institute for Humanities Research and the Center for Science and Imagination here at ASU, um, as well as the Transformation Project in my own department, the Hugh Downs School of Human Communication. Um, and then the the book project is supported by uh, a summer stipend from the National Endowment for the Humanities, as well as the IHR as well. And in these, I've gotten to interview a number of African writers about the work that they're doing. And that has been so such a delight just getting to talk with um, authors about uh, the books that I've read and the stories that I've read of theirs um, and the ways that they are uh, encouraging thought beyond these Western structures. So particularly, I've been working on a chapter um, on uh, Yvette Ndilovu's work, uh, Shingai and Jerry Kagunda and Tade Thompson, that how those three writers um uh, figure time in different ways outside of developmental time that presumes a linear path, right, of like progress movement forward and that that's what the future is going to be. And so thinking about how um, taking African uh, ancestors and not what, what, how do I want to put this? African metaphysics seriously um, requires thinking about time outside of linearity that disturbs and messes with development and totally eradicates the possibility of saviorism. And so I'm, I'm writing about right that right now in their work. And I'm, I'm really excited about where it's going. And I got to present um, a draft of that at a conference where Shingai uh, Kagundo was in the audience and got to interface a little bit with her about that work. And um, one of the things that she said in response to that was that it was so important for her to see African metaphysics taken seriously, um, that ancestors are not just a, a, a metaphor, you know, that that Africans use, but a real part of life and to, and to hear that taken as reality within an academic setting. And so that's something I'm thinking about a lot right now, um, not just African knowledges within the way that we see them in the West being taken seriously, but um, spirituality is taken seriously, not divorcing um, what seems like fantasy or, you know, um, what we would call magical realism from realism, from, from experience. Um, uh, Yvette and Delova's work too, which uses surrealism, Afro-surrealism to talk about uh, life. Um, her stories are surreal, but the surreality, as she writes about in an interview, is more representative of reality um, than anything else because reality under colonialism and under whiteness and under patriarchy is so absurd for African women that surrealism better captures what is actually happening um, than so-called realism does. And so thinking about the ways that African knowledges require, taking them seriously requires breaking a lot of constructs we have in the West of what knowledge is and should be. And so, yeah, I'm really excited about all these projects. Um, 
that are that are coming up. I'm really happy to hear about what's happening in Tanzania. It's great. That's what I was hoping for. And then your work sounds excellent. It sounds so interesting. So I will definitely be watching for it in the future. And thanks so much for talking about your book today. Thank you so much. This uh, this has been a lovely uh, time. And um, yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah, that was great. All right. Have a good one. You too.